Hear these words for our text this morning. Blessed be your glorious name. And may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens and even the highest heavens and all their starry hosts. The earth and all that is in it and the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything and the multitudes of heaven worship you. The word of the Lord. get stuck two weeks in a row <laughs> having to emotionally follow up that. Um, I've, been, I've been doing this gig a long time and uh, there may not be another uh, Sunday that will stick in my memory and my heart quite like this. So thank you for that gift. Um, so we're going to continue uh, our We Believe series today uh, with a brief, would you hold on tight? I got a lot to cover in 15-ish minutes. All right. Hold on tight. Um, let's begin here. Uh, we're going to recite together the Apostles' Creed. We're going to take what we're going to cover today, and we're going to combine it with what we covered last week. This is what we're going to do each week. We're just going to keep building out the Apostles' Creed a little bit and speak it all together. So I'm going to invite you to do that with me here as we begin. So all together, these words. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. If you weren't with us last week, haven't had a chance to watch that service, I want to encourage you to do so. I tried to lay some general groundwork for the Apostles' Creed, some ways of holding the Apostles' Creed, some ways of understanding what it does and what it doesn't do that would probably be really helpful. We're going to hint at those things without going into a lot of the context, so that might be good for you. Um, one thing that I didn't do last week that might be helpful, a couple, a couple people have brought up. Um, I'm going to sort of alternate between, I've used interchangeably the full saying the Apostles' Creed and just saying the Creed, okay? So that's sort of interchangeable. I'm talking about the same thing every time that I do that, but I want to set your hearts at ease that I'm not talking about this Creed when I say the Creed, okay? So be confident that no mid-90s post-grunge rock and roll was consumed in the making of this sermon. If you don't know who the creed is, consider yourself blessed and protected by the Lord. Um, and uh, we should move on. Um, um, we're going to focus on two different ways that the creed invites us to think about and understand who God is. Okay, I'm going to jump right into it. First word is almighty. Um, it's scattered throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's a common word, somewhat common word in Christian faith. It's a very common word in the Bible. Um, it's a way of communicating not just that God can do anything, but it's a way of communicating that God is in charge. 
that he is the king who rules over the world. Um, it's the subject of entire Psalms. If you want to look at it, Psalm 93, 96, 97, 103. These are Psalms that will sort of cement that concept that God rules over everything. We don't have time to do those today. Uh, you're going to get a lot of texts that you can go look at on your own. I'm going to try to fast forward, okay? Um, the word is also paired in poetry a lot of times. It's a way of trying to further communicate God's power. Isaiah uh, 51, 15 is a good example. In Isaiah 51, 15, it says this. Um, For I am the Lord who stirs up the seas, it says, and makes the waves roar. It's just this way of trying to communicate. I am the Almighty, the text says. And then if we fast forward to the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, it's everywhere. This word Almighty is everywhere. Another way of saying God is the king the rule and the reign of God is coming. However slowly it seems to be showing up, the rule and the reign of God is inevitable. And so it's all over that text as well. Um, however, we know that when we use human language to try to talk about God, that we're going we're gonna to hit some pitfalls. We're going to fall short. It's going to be inexact. And so this word does that as well. For some people, when we come to the word almighty, it says, oh, so I guess God can do whatever he wants. Right? And you can look at certain uh, places in the Bible that seem to confirm that. Psalm 135 says this, the Lord does whatever pleases him. It almost feels unfair, as if God doesn't have to play by the same rules that the rest of us do. And still for others, Almighty, it, it presents a kind of intellectual playground. It gives you the opportunity to try to poke holes in some things that the Christian faith holds dear. For some, when Almighty comes up, it stokes questions like this. So, can God make a four-sided triangle? Maybe you've heard this one. Can God create a rock so big and so heavy that God could not pick it up? These are the kinds of intellectual gymnastics that some people try to play around Almighty. And frankly, these aren't real attempts. Um, and uh, uh, there's not real objections. That C.S. Lewis called these silly games with words. The idea that even f uh, 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 philosophical impossibilities are still nonsense, even if you're trying to ask if God could do them. Um, and yet... We come to this word and we have to sort of grapple with it. Well, then what does it, why does it matter or what does it mean for us if it's not all these other kinds of things? Here's what I want to submit to you. That the paradox of Christianity is this. That we situate the might and the power of God differently from the skeptic. Differently from the sort of measurements and assessments that the broader culture might bring to it. Um, here's one of my favorite theologians, and I just love to say his word, his name, Hans Urs von Balthasar. Yeah. Um, Hans Urs von Balthasar said this. Here's a way that we ought to understand the might of God. It's defined by a surrender which is limited by nothing that we understand God's might, the almighty God, in a different way. That throughout the New Testament, remember, we see God put on display in the life of Jesus, who ultimately and faithfully embodied a voluntary submission that seems to make no sense. 
In Jesus, we find the fullness of God in helpless babe that we sing in one of these modern hymns. That in Jesus, we find somebody who made himself nothing, even though he was fully God and became obedient to death. That is a different kind of power, a surrender that is limited by nothing. Von Balthasar, he insists this. This is an inverted way to understand and talk about might and power. That it is essential that we would see the almighty God and see this unimaginable power of the Father um, in the force of his self-surrender, in the force of his love, and not what he can do and what he cannot do, what he chooses to do and not choose to do. That instead, we understand might through God's expressions of love who decides to surrender everything. That's an inverted way of understanding the might and the power. That, my friends, is power beyond what we could ever ask for or even imagine. That's a different thing altogether. And this might is sublimely demonstrated in Jesus on the cross, in the apex of agony, in the summit of suffering, in the depths of degradation. There we see God's power unleashed on an unsuspecting world. Consider that when you hear and speak the word almighty. Second phrase, the maker of heaven and earth. Um, this is a good time to remember that the Apostles' Creed didn't emerge out of nowhere, that it didn't get written in a vacuum. That the Apostles' Creed, in fact, all of the creedal statements of, of our faith, they, they have a come from. That things were happening in the world that they were seeking to address. There were teachings, things were going on that all these creedal statements were trying to tackle. So, around 144, which feels like when the COVID-19 pandemic began... Around 144, an alternative way of understanding Christianity emerged. And we know it these days called Marcionism. Here is your heresy lesson for the day, everybody. This is always fun at parties. So Marcionism was, was a... <laughs> thank you. Um, here's a broad brush way of understanding Marcionism. There are two gods. There was an evil god associated with the Old Testament who created all material things. And all material things are sinful. And so that particular God, um, we look at as evil. And then there's a, as another God associated with the New Testament related to Jesus, who is a spiritual God. And that God's whole role is to free human beings from their miserable and material existence. Okay? We might summarize it this way. In Marcionism, uh, matter is evil and spirit is good. And this caught on. 
people bought into and it was so compelling. This was a heresy that stuck around for three or 400 years before it was ultimately disputed and dismissed. And this is kind of what's swirling around in the Christian um, uh, circles when the Apostles' Creed is being established. So you might see why it would be important that the Apostles' Creed from the very beginning says something like this. We believe in a God who is the maker of heaven and earth. That we don't believe in two gods. We don't believe that the material world is bad and the spiritual world is good. We believe in a God who made everything. One God, one unified God. Does it make sense why this would be an important statement to make? Now, um, it might feel weird. All right, what am I going to cut, friends? Okay, here's what I'm going to do. Dan, I'm going to fast forward quite a few slides. All right, it might feel strange to bring up a heresy 1,700 years after it was dismissed. But what I want to establish here in my last couple minutes is to show you how this ancient heresy sneaks its way into our modern thinking. That we're not on the other side of Marcionism so smart, so sophisticated that it doesn't influence us. That it is sneaky and it finds its way into our thinking, okay? Here's what I want to say. If we don't faithfully, regularly declare and celebrate the one God who is the maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, things seen and unseen, if we don't do that, we might fall prey to three temptations. First temptation would be this, a disregard of the created order. If your mindset, if you carry around with you a kind of worldview that says um, all matter is evil, and if not that extreme, if all matter is suspicious or maybe inherently impure, if that's part of someone's worldview, then it's likely that the created order would not be seen as it is, a gift as a testimony to the greatness of God. Instead, it would be seen as something to be used however you want. To be treated with little regard for its fragility, for its limitations. To have little regard for anyone who comes after you. At best, we passively let the creative order fall apart. And at worst, we believe that it's all going to burn anyway. So we exploit and we abuse. However, when we hold to the biblical understanding of God as the maker of heaven and earth, it challenges this disregard. Among so many spots in the Bible, we have to face with clarity Psalm 24. Here's just one example. Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's. That's enough. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all who live in it. We have to face with clarity these kinds of realities. For he founded it on the seas and he established it on the waters. That means that you and I are stewards and not owners of the created order. We are not at liberty to do whatever we want. In the Belgic Confession, which is a, a key doctrinal statement in the Reformed tradition. It says this. I think this is really beautiful. It talks about how the created order is before our eyes as a most beautiful book 
in which all created things, whether great or small, are as letters showing the invisible things of God to us. Beautiful. Or maybe more simply, uh, a wonderful old hymn that I love, all things bright and beautiful, all creatures great and small, all things wise and wonderful, the Lord God made them all. If we're not careful, and the Apostles' Creed calls us to this, if we're not careful to celebrate and to to declare the maker of heaven and earth, we may very well be be tempted to disregard the created order. Second temptation, a disregard of self. If, If the belief that all matter is evil or even considered suspicious or maybe completely impure, if that's part of someone's worldview, then it's possible to perceive one's own self in the exact same light. To believe that the body is merely something that must be endured and put up. It's an encumbrance getting in the way of some future disembodied freedom. Whether we know it or not, we all swim in waters that are really seasoned by Plato and this Platonic philosophy around uh, how we view and understand our physical selves. Here's what Plato said about the physical body, that the physical body is a coffin for the soul. How's that for dark and heavy? A coffin for the soul. And for some of us, this belief has snuck into our heads and our hearts over the years and has led to varying levels of frankly, what we have to name as self-hatred. As a shame of our physical selves and disordered ways of taking care of our physical selves. Others might not present as intense of a struggle, but I think that the approaches to our bodies might be similar. That for some we undereat and for some we overeat. For some... we physically exercise our body poorly or never. For some, we have mediocre habits of rest and restoration. I mean, how messed up is it that we live in a culture that seems to celebrate people who only sleep for four hours because their must-get-done list is so long? Speaking of rest, on a personal note, I want to tell you that um, the elders have approved for me to take a sabbatical rest over this next year. It's the first one that I will have had in my 17 plus years as a pastor here. And so um, I'm gonna take the month of July and I'm gonna shut off my email and computer and uh, stay at home uh, with my wife and my daughter. And then on the other side of Easter, I'm gonna take another month and just try to do this very thing. How do I take care of myself? How do I, this new daddy is tired, friends. And to throw a new co-lead pastor role on top of that, um, I, I, I want to rest really well. And so I'm going to enter into that. If you want to pray for our family, that would be really amazing. Um, but returning to the truth that God is the maker of all things, we have to remember that that includes you and me. And hopefully over time that compels us to better mindsets and better practices <laughs> that honor and care for our physical selves. Every year when we come to the Ash Wednesday service, I find my voice caught in my throat when we pray these words. Almighty and everlasting God, you hate nothing you have made. 
And that means you. You have been made, and God hates nothing that he has made. Therefore, neither should you. You are a cherished creation. Not your spirit, your physical, embodied person. You are a cherished creation who has been fearfully and wonderfully made by the maker of heaven and earth. Do not disregard your physical self. Third temptation would be this, and I'll be done. Uh, There's a potential disregard for others. If we believe that all matter is evil or even considered suspicious, completely impure, then if that's part of someone's worldview, then in a similar way we can easily see other people as, well, means to an end. We can probably rationalize, justify physical and verbal and emotional and psychological abuse. We can justify using phrases like, well, she just deserved it, or he had it coming. That we can rationalize gaslighting. We can rationalize completely canceling someone. We can rationalize using phrases like, that person is dead to me. But that is a complete disregard for the other. The Bible constantly calls us to a treatment of the other that is far beyond what we would naturally choose and far beyond what seems to make sense to us. A couple of fast ones. Philippians 2.3, it tells us among so many other verses like it that we ought to think of others more highly than ourselves. 1 Peter 3.8 says, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate, be humble. Uh, Romans 12 in the ESV translation, it says this, outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. Each of these texts, they share the belief that all people are created in the image of God and that all were created by the maker of heaven and earth. Friends, we all need to be drawn towards better interactions with our world, with our neighbors, and with our own physical selves. And the Apostles' Creed is lending its voice is seeking to lead us better in those directions, encouraging us when it highlights the God who is the maker of heaven and earth, all things seen and unseen, visible and invisible. The creator humbly entered the creation in the person of Jesus in order to restore it, to restore both the created order and everyone who lives in it. And that's what we celebrate each week when we come to the table. And before we do that, I want to, I want to invite you to do this with me. I want us to read the text that we heard as we began this teaching, these wonderful words from the book of Nehemiah, as we remember this wonderful reality that we believe in a God who is the maker of heaven and earth. So would you join me in reading these words? Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. Amen.